We have this paradox where not only are we safer than we have ever been, but we are also more fearful of crime than we have ever been, and we are also more demanding of our governments to be more punitive. Today on Better Things, we look at the not-so-simple question of why people commit crime and how to make communities safer. The answer suggests that governments here and elsewhere are much too focused on reducing recidivism and should instead turn their attention to the front end of the offending cycle. Here's Jason. My name's Jason Payne. I'm an associate professor at the Australian National University specialising in criminology. I teach first year students introductory theory in criminology and I teach second and third year students about research methods and drugs and crime. Outside of my teaching, I do quite a bit of research in the drugs and crime space, as well as research in the area of what we call recidivism reduction or reoffending reduction. And that is looking at who comes into prison, why they come into prison, and what are the things that we can do to help prevent them from returning to prison time and time again. So what is it that you mean when you say why they come to prison? So Australia at the moment is internationally unique in the sense that we have increasing imprisonment rates. Now, when I say unique, I mean that Australia is one of the few countries around the world where our imprisonment rates at the moment are continuing to go up. In the United States, uh, imprisonment rates went through about 10 years ago what we've collectively described as hyper-incarceration. It's a bit like hyper-inflation for the econ economists, uh, but hyper-incarceration was this really fast and rapid increase in imprisonment in the United States. But in the last five years over in the US, the incarceration rate, the rate at which we put people in prison, has actually started to turn backwards and go down. Um, in a lot of European countries, Scandinavian countries, for example, uh, imprisonment rates have not continued to increase like they have in Australia persistently for a long period of time. And so we're interested here in Australia in two things. The first is, why is it that in Australia our incarceration rates are continuing to go up without seemingly any decline or any change? What are the reasons for the offending, uh, that is the crimes that are committed by those people who end up in our criminal justice system. How is it that the system itself perpetuates a growth in incarceration by the way it manages people, by the policies and the laws that we have? And then finally, what is it about the system that either does or does not help people when they are incarcerated uh, to prevent themselves from reoffending or to minimise the amount of crime they might commit when they leave prison. So when I talk about prison and reoffending and incarceration, what I'm talking about here is a much more global interest at a policy level in the way in which our criminal justice system works. And all of that's founded within a desire to understand this seemingly internationally unique perpetual increase in the rate at which we're putting people in Australian prisons. Hmm. So in the Australian situation then, what has your research told you about why incarceration rates are going up here? So there's a, a whole range of factors uh, that give rise to an increase in the incarceration rate. Probably the single greatest contributor in Australia has been a very significant rise, faster than any in any other category, a very significant rise in the number of people who are remanded in custody without conviction. Uh, now, let me explain that. Uh, in a standard criminal case, uh, when a person is arrested by the police, the police can make a decision. 
uh, either to offer that person bail and allow them to remain in the community while their criminal case is heard by the court. And that can take several months, potentially even up to a year in some cases. Uh, And most people who commit a crime who have no prior criminal history will be bailed by the police to live at home while their criminal matter is being heard by the court. For those who the police don't believe should be in the community, they object to bail and they present to the magistrate or a court the reasons for rejecting that bail. And what that means ultimately is that those people will likely be incarcerated for the entire time it takes the court to decide whether they were guilty. What has happened in Australia, unlike in any other part in our history or any other time in our history, uh, we have seen a very substantial increase, disproportionate to all other groups, of people for whom the police and the courts are deciding are not allowed in our community while we wait to decide whether they are guilty, while we wait to decide whether they are convicted. Now, the reason for that is tricky um, and multifaceted. Uh, A lot of the reason why people are not given bail, that is, the reason why they are remanded in custody, is because the court has determined or the police have determined that that person is at an unreasonable risk of reoffending. That's the standard, for the most part, that a magistrate or a police bench sergeant will use. A person is at reasonable risk of reoffending, and the purpose of placing a person in custody during that time is ultimately to prevent them from inflicting further crime on the community or victimising new people. It turns out that we increasingly and more and more than ever at any point in our history are treating people as higher risk than we did historically. And that is usually the result of a number of factors about a person's history that a magistrate or a police officer is taking into account. We know from good evidence in Australia that one of the the single most important reasons why a magistrate might deny a person bail is because they are homeless or they don't actually have somewhere to live uh, that would be considered by the courts to be an appropriate place of residence. What that means is the magistrate is making a decision that this person is at unreasonable risk of reoffending because they simply don't have a place for which we can be confident they can live uh, in a what we would call pro-social, non-offending environment. Other factors include things like drug use, if a person has a history of drug use, um, if a person has a history of offending before, uh, if the nature or circumstances of the offence are deemed to be so serious by the magistrate as to to believe that their risk of reoffending is high. But by and large, it is the combination of a whole range of what we might call socioeconomic characteristics of an individual for which we believe or have come to believe increase the risk that a person will reoffend, which is now informing decisions about keeping people in custody while they are awaiting trial. And I think it's important just to remind people that these people are not guilty that these people have not been determined by the court to be guilty of the crime for which they have charged. They have not yet been convicted for those offences, but they are being held in custody for oftentimes very long periods of time while they await someone to make that decision, the, the Australian criminal justice system. And so what we have seen in Australia is this big rise in incarceration rates 
by overall, which has been driven by this really significant increase in the number of people who are being held in custody before they have been found guilty and before they have been convicted. Do you think that there is a relationship between these factors about these individuals that make magistrates and police feel that these people are at risk of reoffending? Is there a relationship between those factors and how or why they turn to crime in the first place? So I think this is a tricky question, and it's tricky because um, it depends on how one interprets both the evidence, empirical evidence, but also the day-to-day experience of police officers and the day-to-day experience of magistrates. The empirical evidence doesn't show that homeless people are uh, necessarily significantly more likely to reoffend. Um, yes, they have circumstances in their life that make abiding by the law difficult, uh, and sometimes that might lead them to a situation where they are reoffending in in ways that we might not consider highly criminal, but they are still, in a sense, a contravention of the law. What the police see, however, and what the magistrates see, however, is a large number of people cycling through the system with these characteristics. So while the evidence isn't always necessarily strong about, say, homelessness as a cause of crime, the people who are administering justice are seeing these people regularly enough to embed a kind of implicit bias in the procedure which sees these people as more risky than other people. And I think we can't disentangle, importantly, how the system functions and what the people who in that system, what they see on a day-to-day basis from what we understand to be some of the empirical evidence. And I think that's really key to understanding how in the absence of good quality data that shows that certain things are truly causal of a person committing crime, there is still a system that is treating those factors as highly likely to be linked to reoffending, because the population of people coming through our criminal justice system are oftentimes from highly disadvantaged backgrounds. And so our magistrates and our police are seeing these highly disadvantaged people all the time And is it any wonder that they continue to then embed this knowledge about these factors being risk factors? I think that's why it's important that we understand the difference between what can be empirically shown to be a causal factor for crime and and how it is that our criminal justice actors, and I mean here our magistrates and our police, how it is they come to interpret what they see on a day-to-day basis. And those two things don't always necessarily connect well together. On a related note, and to perhaps wind things back a little bit, this may be a preposterously basic question. It was a question that I was having a discussion with a friend about at lunchtime, actually, uh, about why it is that people turn to crime in the first place. As a criminologist, would you like to provide an answer to that question? The answer to that question is perhaps best explained through the simple fact that no criminologist has yet managed to solve the problem of crime. (laughs) That means there is no single nor simple answer for why individuals turn to crime. And there is a plethora of criminological theory that some of which attempts to explain at an aggregate level why people might engage in crime and then at a very specific level why people might commit particular types of offences. At the very aggregate level, uh, criminological theory has placed in recent years significant emphasis 
in what we call developmental and life course criminology, which asks the question, how is it that a population of people can produce X amount of crime or a, or a certain number of crime? And what is it about that population as a whole that might help us to understand why some people commit crime and other people don't? And, and there are, again, within that, a large number of theoretical approaches um, and you know, levels of understanding about why that might be. Uh, some people, uh, and I would say the bulk of developmental criminologists, place significant weight on what we would call unfavourable developmental environments for young children. These are young children who either have themselves personality disorders, they might have uh, some kind of, of antisocial propensity, uh, they are likely to have been interacted with in their family environment but also in their schooling environment in a relatively negative way and over the years that interaction embeds whether that's cognitively or behaviorally into what we would call kind of normative antisocial behavior and these young kids represent a relatively small proportion of a population um, but they can go on if that behavioral repertoire is embedded they can go on to commit quite a lot of crime across the rest of their life uh, and so developmental criminologists would say to you that that at a very global level it's about how we raise children particularly those children who struggle to maintain social conformity and how we respond to them both at home and in the schoolyard and in other social environments and how that response might help to profit and embed an antisocial behaviour that then carries on for the rest of that person's life. Other criminologists think more about the here and now. So developmental criminologists think a lot about young kids developing and what happens to them for the rest of their lives. But situational or environmental criminologists would say we ought to focus more on the situation of the crime that is about to be committed and understand why it's happening rather than why the individual developed that way. And that's just a different frame of thinking about crime in our community. And it's a very kind of pragmatic way of thinking about the prevention of crime because what it asks is not how do you prevent the person from becoming criminal, but how do you prevent the crime from occurring? And there's good criminological theory to show that at a particular point in time or in a particular place, we can be very successful in preventing a crime from occurring by tackling some of the situationally specific energizing factors. Alcohol use, for example, and intoxication has been linked time and time again to increases in assault and violent related behavior. So managing in various different ways consumption of alcohol in our community and minimizing binge drinking are good situational ways or environmental ways of helping to prevent or minimize crime in particular contexts. Um, changing environments so that crime opportunities are less frequent or less available is another way of preventing crime that talks not about who commits it, but why it happens. And so to answer your question, though be it a long and somewhat convoluted answer, and that's because criminological theory is in many respects a convoluted group of ideas that are trying to explain both development of people, but also situationally why crime occurs. And that's why in all of that, uh, there isn't a kind of single answer to how it is we get to where we are in our community with the amount of crime that we have. And that's why it makes it difficult and challenging for us 
to prevent all crime because we think that it's actually multifactorial, multi-causal. Uh, some people commit crime for some reasons that are different to others, and there's never a single or global response to all of what happens in our community. So you talked about criminological theory, and this is what it says. Do your own views line up with that? What, what is it that you think? So it will come as no surprise that uh, since I preferenced at the beginning developmental and life course criminology that I ascribe very much to the view uh, that we can't separate the individual from their development and that we need, if we're to understand why a person commits a crime, we need to understand what has given rise to the behavioural development that has preceded it. A particularly useful way of thinking about it for two reasons. Uh, because we know that human behaviour is what we call uh, temporally correlated. So what I do in one year is oftentimes related to what I did the year before, which is a development problem. It's a, it's a longitudinal and development problem. And if in my research I'm interested in preventing people from coming out of prison and reoffending, then I can't be ignorant of what has preceded that. Just take, for example, the significant rise of, of Indigenous incarceration in Australia. Uh, to simply say that that could be solved by changing situations of offending would be completely inadequate. Um, to say that Indigenous overrepresentation in our criminal justice system could be simply and singularly solved by environmental responses to crime opportunities, uh, I think is somewhat unreasonable. Instead, as a community, we need to look at what are the both intergenerational causes of Indigenous disadvantage, uh, what are the cultural and organisational causes at both the policing and the, the criminal justice system level for why our Indigenous Australians are more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. Why are we detecting their crime more often? Why are we arresting them at higher frequencies? Why are we imprisoning them at seemingly higher frequencies? Uh, and so for me, it will come as no surprise that, that my view is the answer to that question really needs to be embedded within an understanding of that person's development. Not just their development, but the community development around them that has really helped to either profit or not their development through life. So the governments in Australia and governments overseas are very focused on the idea of recidivism and keeping people from reoffending and returning to jail. But it sounds like within your area of interest and in line with your views, the problem is actually to be found in why people turn to crime in the first place and um, I guess that first admittance into the prison system. So do you think that it's the case that governments actually uh, are focused on the wrong part of the cycle? A simple and short answer to your question is, is absolutely. Let me provide some background and context for this. Uh, Australian governments almost universally across Australia have recently gone about setting what we call recidivism reduction targets. Um, what that means is that every year the system is evaluated and it is evaluated on how many people leave prison and come back. That's what we call recidivism. We usually measure that within two years. So we say how many people who left prison in 2016 came back to prison by 2018. Um, most of the Australian governments uh, have established these reduction targets, which have said that as a community, 
we ought to be, or as policymakers, we ought to be striving to reduce the number of people that come back into prison uh, after they've been in prison. Uh, and we want to reduce that recidivism rate. And in fact, a good example is here in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, uh, Australia's capital. Uh, there is a there is a recidivism reduction target of 25% by 2025, which has to be one of the most ambitious targets in Australia, indeed, often one of the most ambitious in the world. The challenge here is that it focuses, as you rightly point out, on investing all the resources at the point of leaving custody, uh, rather than thinking about how do we prevent the person from ending up in custody in the first place. Uh, and it is a policy conundrum in many respects, because of course we want to reduce the rate of recidivism, we want to reduce the number of people who leave prison and come back. But the most likely solution to that will be to invest early to support the people through whatever circumstances or situations are giving rise to their offending, to support them in a way um, that helps to mitigate and minimise what we might call the criminogenic factors, so that they either don't end up in prison in the first place, or if they do end up in prison, they have sufficient supports to return to when they leave prison, such that reoffending is a much less probable or less common outcome. The unfortunate reality of setting recidivism targets is that it myopically focuses policy people on what do we do with those people when they leave rather than how do we invest in them before they get there. And uh, developmental criminology, uh, again, no surprises that that's an area that I would turn to, really argues in favour of early intervention. Uh, it argues in favour of not just supporting kids through their development be that with their family or in their social environments or their school environments, but also to think about iterative early interventions that de-escalate a person's probability of having contact with the criminal justice system for a long period of time. We would achieve much greater outcomes if we could get the early intervention right, if we could de-escalate or delegitimize or devalue those criminogenic factors early, then we would have fewer people ending up in prison and thus fewer people needing to be reduced in terms of their recidivism later on. Um, and so there's a real trick to thinking about what we in the criminal justice system see regularly, which are these setting of targets, which look publicly appealing. But what they do is they frame and focus the policymakers sometimes on the wrong part of the system. Now, don't mistake me, there are people coming out of prison who really do need help, very specific help um, in order to reintegrate back into the community. They need education, they need employment. Uh, so I'm not calling for a moment the disbanding of what we call post-release programs. I'm cautioning against the use of targets to ignore or should I say, reinvest more and more money at the back end of the criminal justice system, when actually the greatest benefit will likely be delivered by a reinvestment in the front end. And in fact, here in Canberra, of all places uh, around Australia, there's been a really solid investment in what's known as justice reinvestment. Uh, it's an early intervention and developmental criminology informed approach to reinvesting money that would otherwise be spent in the back end or the later end of the criminal justice system into more early intervention strategies. And these programs, both here in the ACT and elsewhere across Australia, are showing real promise in minimising the flow through and the throughput 
to criminal justice systems rather than necessarily targeting singularly what happens at the end. And if we were to accept that there's a kind of plethora of criminological theory that gives us many different tools and policy levers, uh, uh, the argument here should be for a co-investment or a, a joint investment in post-prison programs that help people coming out of prison, but not to the ignorance of the early intervention that's really needed to stop those people from ending up in prison in the first place. Do you have any views on why it is that governments have tended to be more focused on recidivism and investing in that side of things rather than on early intervention? Yes, that's because recidivism is one of the easiest things to measure on the one hand. Um, so if you think about what recidivism is, whether a person who leaves prison comes back, um, is a pretty simple and some would say very crude way of measuring the success of the criminal justice system. Um, and there would be lots of policymakers around Australia who don't agree that recidivism is the best measure of our success, and I would agree with that in many respects. Um, I think the, the issue oftentimes is how do we frame knowledge about the system's success? How do we understand what that success looks like? And then what do we do with that information once it's presented to us? Some people, and this is going to be a crazy idea, but some people would say that an optimal criminal justice system should have a 100% recidivism rate. Now that sounds strange sounds almost incongruous because what I'm saying is that our prisons should always produce people that re-offend. But I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that if our prisons were reserved only for the people who were the highest risk in our community, then our recidivism rates should be high because prisons are there to, in effect, uh, incapacitate people who are of direct danger, direct risk to our community. And those people, if and when they are released, are probably very likely to re-offend. And no one in our community would deny that as a fact. An optimally working criminal justice system is one where those who are very low risk don't end up in prison at all. Because prison itself is criminogenic. Prison itself isolates people from their family. It separates them from their community. It segregates them from pro-social engagement. They lose their job. They lose their driver's license. Uh, they lose all sorts of connections to their community. And the loss that is felt by a person going into prison can oftentimes be the reason why they re-offend later. So recidivism leads us to believe that prisons should reduce less sorry, reduce re-offending and produce less re-offending re or produce less recidivism. But if we reduce the number of people going into prison, then one could easily foresee an increasing recidivism rate, um, which is a reflection of the fact that we're doing much better earlier on than necessarily while a person is, is within custody. So it's a really difficult and complex way of thinking about what it is we're measuring how it is we conceptualise success in the criminal justice system and what benchmarks we set for the programs and the policies we have in our criminal justice system. And I don't think anyone for a moment will accept that prisons should have no 100% recidivism rate. But at a conceptual level, it speaks to this um, what we might call crudeness in the measurement of something for which we're not entirely sure what it represents about our system. 
And then once you start measuring these things, you set targets on these things, and those targets themselves can be difficult, problematic, because what they do is they encourage policy making to be focused in areas or funding or, or, or government expenditure to be focused in areas uh, which perhaps is not the most optimal place for that focus. Mm. It seems like all these strategies are amounting to the common goal, really, of keeping people safer, and the disagreement just seems to be how to achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the core goal of any criminologist ought to be framed through an understanding of community safety. Um, how do we keep people in our community safe uh, from others who might, for whatever reason, engage in activities which deprive people of their property, if that's a property offence, or, or victimise them in a violent way? And if we think about the criminal justice system through the lens of safety, then what we want to see is a prison system which is optimally designed to produce the greatest outcomes for safety in our community. Putting people who are low risk of reoffending in prison and making them higher risk of reoffending is not a good outcome in terms of safety for our community. And that is unfortunately what is likely happening at the moment in a number of circumstances. Um, putting people in prison because they have committed a crime that is a consequence of their own victimisation is arguably unethical. Uh, a classic case is that the vast majority of women in Australian prisons have a history of, of physical abuse, domestic violence, sexual abuse. Um, they are themselves the victims of crime, oftentimes from their childhood, but also in their adulthood. They do go on to commit crime, sure, but that crime is the, probably the consequence of a, a, a building up of all of their own victimization. And so prisons in that case become a warehouse of people who themselves have been victims in our community. So we really do need to think about what the objective of our criminal justice system is. And if it's focused through the lens of safety, it ought to be about making sure that those who end up in prison are there because they are of genuine risk to our community in terms of both violent and property crime. And that risk is significant enough to be weighed against what we know to be the negative consequences of putting someone in prison. Is putting a person in prison for a burglary, for example, justified knowing that by doing that, we are extracting them from their community, that we are breaking their ties to their family, we are removing their employability, we are reducing their uh, educational capacity, we are doing all manner of things through their custody, which probably are going to energise further offending more than had we have kept them in the community and helped to mitigate the reasons why they ended up in the criminal justice system in the first place. So this podcast is intended to provide some kind of takeaway or um, some kind of application that uh, people can um, take from the subject matter and apply back to their own lives. What is it that you think that ordinary people can do to play a role here in this issue uh, to help make themselves safer? Every person can stop demanding of their governments more punitive responses to crime. What, what we forget in Australia is crime since about the year 2000 has been going down every year. We are now safer in Australia than we have been at any point in the past in terms of crime rates, the volume of crime and the relative experience of individuals with respect to their risk of victimisation. 
Yet, every election cycle and every time there's a public debate on this, there is a call for greater punitiveness. There's a call for more prisons to be built, more police to be hired, more um, punitive responses to offending. And so we have this paradox where not only are we safer than we have ever been, but we are also more fearful of crime than we have ever been, and we are also more demanding of our governments to be more punitive. So if there was a single thing that the average lay person in Australia could do, it would be to think twice about demanding from their governments, from their politicians and their elected representatives, more punitive responses to crime. Because those punitive responses have not changed or not helped uh, the situation. Uh, what's driven crime down is not what's happening in the adult populations in prison. It's what's happening in our youth populations at the moment around the level of crime they're committing and the types of opportunities that young kids have. Um, we know that increasing punitiveness does not reduce crime. We know that increasing punitiveness overall does not prevent crime uh, and so we ought to be as lay people in our community less demanding of punitive actions from our politicians and this is typically an election cycle problem um, when we start talking about law and order and whose responsibility it is to keep people safe. All right then, Jason Payne, thanks very much for talking to me. My pleasure. Better Things is brought to you by the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. This show is produced by me, Ivana Ho. The theme music is One More Time by Fab Beat. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe in your preferred podcasting app so you get each new episode as it comes out. And be sure to check out our other podcast, This Academic's Life, to hear about the pivotal events and experiences that shape the lives, careers and research of our academics. Tune in next time for more insights on how to approach the world to live a better life.